Matthew chapter 28. When I was a little younger, I, I played football when I was sixth grade and junior high. No great phenomenal talent, rest assured. In fact, I found out that, you know, really, I did better running in circles, i.e. track, than I did in football. But nonetheless, I, I played some football in sixth grade and, through, and junior high. And I remember one coach in particular, a man by the name of Snuffy Williams, took these boys, junior high boys, which I was one of them, and Snuffy Williams' teams always were champions. They always pretty much won the division, oftentimes won the championship, and I had an opportunity playing for Snuffy Williams. Of course, I called him coach, and I didn't address him on a first-name basis, but I learned a lot from that man. I learned a lot about teamwork. I learned how to play, and, you know, it was, it was real interesting. It was, every year was the same. First day of practice, everybody was handed a playbook. You were to go home and memorize it. And every play, you were required to, to actually execute it just the way it was drawn. And if you, didn't, if you couldn't memorize it or you couldn't do what was on the play chart, you just didn't play. It didn't matter how phenomenal a talent you were. You had to memorize the plays and you had to do them. We had no stars on our team, but we won a lot of ball games. And I'll tell you, you want to know the big secret? Okay, I'm sure the Dallas Cowboys would like to know. No one's thinking about the Cowboys today anyway, but I'll tell you. You know what it was? We just followed the play. We just executed just the way it was. That was the secret. And, you know, the coach, if we didn't make our block or the guy didn't hit the hole right or the pattern wasn't run correctly, coach would have just a way of showing up and kind of standing by you with the playbook in hand, and he'd just ask you this question. What are you doing? And, you know, for a junior high boy, I mean, you're just like, I don't know, but it wasn't right. You know, you got the message that you didn't do what was right. We all knew what the play was, and it was pretty obvious if you didn't do it. Uh, my fellow believers, Christians, what's the play? What is the play that the Savior has called? What has Jesus Christ called us and commissioned us to do? I would imagine that many of you have the play memorized. But this morning... I'd like to ask you, what is the play? What are we supposed to be doing? What is he called? What has the Savior called his followers to do? And in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, we find God's plan for every believer's life as given by the resurrected Jesus Christ. And this morning, especially, we'd like to focus on baptism in the context of the Great Commission. So what is God's plan? What does he want us to do? Well, it's pretty easy. Verse 18 in chapter 28, Jesus Christ calls each person to, first of all, know who he is. You'll notice in the text in verse 17, right before that, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. They were proceeding to Galilee, they're they're going to a particular mountain, and they were worshipping him, but some were doubtful. They weren't doubting his resurrection, but they were wondering, is this? Is this Jesus? Because every time Jesus had made post-resurrection appearances, I mean, something miraculous happened. He walked through doors. Something amazing happened. And perhaps some of them, as recorded here in Scripture, that there were some that were doubtful. By the way, this actually authenticates that these are God's word and this wasn't some sort of made-up story or myth because if you were making up a myth, you wouldn't have anybody doubting, okay? So scholars use this to, again, authenticate these are actual words. This is actually the way it happened. But I'll tell you something. Jesus doesn't want his followers doubting who he is. He wants it to be crystal clear. That's why, verse 18, Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He doesn't want anybody doubting. He wants you to know all authority, absolute authority. Sovereign authority. His time of humiliation and bring brought down to this earth is over. He is the absolute sovereign one. He is God of gods. He is the one. There is to be no mistake. You know what God's plan is? God's plan is for his people to know who he is. And by the way, that is extremely important because who you believe God to be shapes your life. Who you believe God to be shapes your life. 
it, it affects every area. What you think about, what you do with your time, how you use your finances, that is determined by who you think God is. The direction of your family, how you treat others, what you think of yourself, it's all determined by who you believe Jesus Christ is. For instance, your prayer life. Our prayer life is in direct proportion to our view of God. If you think God is great, I would imagine that you're also a person that has prayer as a priority in your life. It's only in keeping. And you know what? The converse is also true. You know, if you do not know who he is, you will not do what he says. Plain and simple. That is why God's plan is for his people to know who he is. Who is he? He is the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. This one is God. You know what God's plan is? It's for us to know who he is. But you know what the second part of it is? Is that we are to follow what he says. We are to know who he is and we are to follow what he says. So what are we to do? Well, you can find it there right in verse 19. I I imagine this is very familiar to you, but I would like you to listen to it with fresh ears. Go therefore... And make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So what is the Great Commission? There's one verb here, and you know what it is? It's to make disciples Now, please don't confuse making a disciple with someone that comes to church, okay? Um, The disciple, that was the most common term for a follower of Jesus. But a better word, when you're thinking of disciple, to think of it, a disciple is like almost like an apprentice. What did Jesus do? He gathered some men. He picked them. He trained them. They lived with him. They watched him. They followed him. They asked him questions. They interacted with his life. And he taught them. And then he said, now you go do the same. That is true, authentic discipleship. And by the way, that is to be continually carried out by his people. He says, I want you to make disciples. They weren't scratching their head like, well, how do you do that? Because they had lived it. They had experience. They had been trained by the master himself. I want you to make disciples. And you're saying, well, how are we supposed to go about that? He gives the divine design for making disciples. This is what Jesus Christ calls us to follow. It's written right here in the text. In fact, we could say this. God's plan is in your hand. If you have a Bible open today, God's plan is in your hand. So. How do you do this? Well, he tells you. How are we supposed to make disciples? It's actually very clear, very simple. First of all, you are to be going. Second, baptizing. Third, teaching. It it says go, therefore, but go is really a participle, as is baptizing and as teaching. Participles are the I-N-G words. Go, therefore, it's really an aorist participle. It is making the assumption that you are already going. You know what Jesus calls us to do? You know what the play is? You guys know, right? We're all, it's a huddle time here right now. The play is that we're going. That means that you and I are called by the Savior to go and to make contact with people, to engage them, to interact in their life, to listen to them, to love to them, love them, to speak with them. But you've got to go and make contact and you've got to be intentionally involved. The plan is not go isolate yourself. This is not a call to monastic living. No. You know what the play is? The play is go. You have to engage the people in this world. That's the play. Jesus says, I want you to go. The second participle that we come, he says, go, therefore, and and make disciples of all the nations. By the way, that that kind of gives you a framework of where we're supposed to go everywhere. Why do Christians go to the remotest part of the earth to villages where they might end up getting killed? Because the Savior has sent us. And you know what? When we're all in heaven, for all of you who truly believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you will find that it abounds with people of every tribe, tongue, and nation as they worship the Lord Jesus Christ and surround the throne. We're to go. That is God's plan. And the second is we're to be 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I think we understand the going part. Yep, we're supposed to go. A lot of us feel guilty, like, I don't really want to go too much, but, you know, I understand that I'm supposed to. Then we're supposed to be baptizing. This is God's plan. Now, what does that word baptize mean? There are two Greek verbs in the New Testament that that are used in regards to baptism, okay? The first one is bapto. We're going to learn a little Greek here. It's only used four times in the New Testament. And it means to dip into, okay? To, to, to immerse something. It was used to dye something. You would dip it in. You'd dye it. It'd change color. In fact, it'd absorb and identify the color it was dipped into. That's used four times. The 77 times this word is used, baptizo, it's an intensified form. It means to... It's, it's actually the Greek word to drown. It is to dip completely. It is to submerse. It is to immerse. That is what the 77 times, that's what you find in the New Testament, is to immerse, to, to totally cover. It's the word used to actually to drown. And you can even see that in the Latin equivalent. You know what the Latin words that are used that translated this word baptizo are immersio and submersio. They're like, you know, that sounds like the word submersion, immersion. I, I got that. It's to totally submerge underneath. That's what it means, to totally immerse. And that is how the New Testament uses the word baptize or baptizo or bapto. It is to totally submerge. So, for instance, like it talks about in Romans chapter 6, it says what? Do you not know, no, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? What does that mean? It, it means to be completely immersed in Christ. All of us who are completely immersed in Jesus Christ, we have been identified with him and with his death. That is the pattern that you see. And when you go through the book of Acts, you find that when baptism is referred to in its noun form, baptismos, it is always symbolizes this union in Christ, but it is the water aspect of being submerged that, that pictures this identity with him. It is going into water being covered by it, and coming up. So whenever you find baptism in the Bible, it is the word immerse or submerse. You can actually put that in there. That's what the word means. Every New Testament of this term requires or permits the idea of immersion. And that is exactly how it was practiced in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 3, so if you were to go to the early part of this gospel that we're looking at today, in Matthew chapter 3, you have a guy by the name of John the Baptist. Okay, He wasn't affiliated with a particular denomination. He was the Baptist because that's what he did. And how did he baptize people? Matthew chapter 3, verse 6. The people were coming out to him, and how did, what did he do? He baptized by him in the Jordan River. He took them, and he baptized them, and he put them in there. It says in John chapter 3, verse 23, John was also baptizing in Enon and Salem because there was much water there. Why did he need much water? What do you think? You got Anybody got an idea why he needed much water? It's because he was submerging people, and they were being immersed that's what baptism is. Probably a text that many of us are familiar with is the account of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. You remember? And he, he believed in Christ and he says, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And you remember, and there was nothing if you truly believe. And so what did they do? You can find this Acts chapter 8, verse 38. They both went down into the water. Verse 39, when they came up out of the water. And so that is the picture of baptism. Baptizo is to submerge, immerse that's what took place. And really, the only picture of, what, of this union with the, dead, the, the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that really works is a, a baptism, a water submerging that goes down and comes back up. It symbolizes death to self and new life in Christ. And so what is baptism? It is a ceremony by which a person is immersed or submerged into water to identify that they are vitally united with the crucified and resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. That is what baptism is. And friends, guess what? This is the play. This is what the Savior has called. We are to go and we are to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. When someone puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior, what are we supposed to do? We're to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's interesting what you see there. The name, the name of someone actually signified their, everything that person stood for. Okay? And if, it's very interesting, but 
who are we to baptize in the name singular, and yet the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Here is a great text that shows who God is. He is one God, name, who exists in three persons. It is the, the concept of the Trinity. One God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So we're to baptize. That's what we are to do. Is, is everybody clear on the play? We're supposed to be going and we're supposed to be baptizing. But what is the history of baptism? Where, you know, where did that get started? Uh, you know, what's kind of happened over church ages? Uh, some of you are probably aware that this is a pretty hot topic. There's a lot of different views on that. What, what is the history? And I'd like to just give you a brief overview of the subject of baptism. Now, you might be surprised by this, but baptism actually begins in Judaism. Okay? That's where it got started in Old Testament times. The Jews were those people who had God's law, promises, prophets, the covenants, okay? And if someone who was a non-Jew wanted to truly worship God and be a part of God's covenant community, those that he had marked out not only nationally, but to be a part of the true worship of Yahweh, they became a proselyte. They, they became a convert to Judaism. And so there was a process they had called proselyte induction. So if you were a Gentile and you wanted to become a Jew in Old Testament times, they had a process in which you went through. I find this to be fascinating because they had three aspects or three parts to this process. The first one was circumcision. And then they had animal sacrifice. And the third was they had baptism. This, in fact, is the first place where we see baptism as part of kind of a, a, a part of the history of regeneration. And so they, first of all, had circumcision. All males, didn't matter what your age, if you wanted to be a convert into Judaism, you had to go through circumcision, which marked you out as a part through this ceremony that took place for all males as you now identifying with God's national people, Israel. Then there was this immersion, this baptism, and that's exactly what they did. These people, in their baptism, they would be completely submerged and it represented they were dead to self, dead to the old way of life, dead to the paganism that they came out of. They were completely dead to their old habits, old traditions, and at the rising up, they were expressing they had new life and they are now part of God's community. That is where you see immersion or baptism taking place. And then they had this third part, which is I find to be very interesting. They had a sacrificial animal that you brought, and the animal was slaughtered as a representation substitute for the fact that recognizes that you had to have the substitute to pay and to die and shed blood for your sin. All of that completely prefigured the coming ultimate lamb who would truly take away sins, who would be sacrificed. So that was the process that you had if you were a Gentile, wanted to become a Jew. You went through this proselyte induction and it had circumcision, animal sacrifice and baptism. Now we skip ahead to a man by the name of John the Baptist. John arrives on the scene. We're still in Old Testament times. John is the last prophet. He is calling people to repent for the Messiah is coming. The Lamb of God is coming. The kingdom of God is coming. He is God's spokesperson to call the world, the nation and the Jews to true repentance. Now, it's not surprising that John was baptizing people because that worked in their system. They had an identity with that. What was totally shocking and remarkable about John's ministry, that the reason that it created such a stir in Judaism is he was calling Jews to come and be baptized. Gentiles, proselytes, and, and by the way, Jews didn't think much of Gentiles, and there weren't a lot of proselytes, and even reading about that, you know, Some of these Jewish rabbis hated proselytes. And they thought, in fact, that was delaying the coming of the Messiah. I mean, don't think there was a lot of them or they thought too highly. But you now had John telling Jews to be baptized. That's what was shocking. Gentiles, one thing. Unclean folks, yeah, go through those things. A Jew, though, whoa. That's what was creating such an alarm in the country. Where's John? He's hanging out at the Jordan River and he's calling people to repent and what? And be baptized. And that is exactly what took place. And what you're basically saying is, I am like a Gentile. I am sinful and I am in desperate need of God. And so he was baptizing people and people were, in effect, identifying with John's message. I need to be dead to self and I need to be coming to this one that John is pointing to. Now, there was a situation on a very special day 
that Jesus of Nazareth came at the very beginning of his ministry. And now, what do we know about Jesus? Does Jesus have any sin? No, he is sinless, without sin. And John recognized who he was and he went, whoa, wait, this is wrong. I, I, I have need of being baptized by you. And Jesus made this statement and he said in Matthew chapter 3, you can read about it in verses 13 through 15, 15, he says, you need to do this, to forbid it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus was baptized, why? Because he was identifying with John's message of repentance and that the kingdom was coming. But Jesus was totally unique. John recognized it. And if you were there the day that Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River, and by the way, you, you can find this, he actually went into the river. When you, if you were there, this is what took place. Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. Where is Jesus? He is in the water. He comes up out of the water and behold, the heavens and the, he opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lightning on him and behold, a voice out of the heavens said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased so that no one would miss it. God identified his Son standing in the water fulfilling all righteousness right there. And that is the pattern that we have of People then who believed in Christ, they were baptized. They were submerged. In fact, this has been researched well. And during the first two centuries, adult baptism by immersion was the norm. That's what it was. During the latter part of the second century, there was a conflict that arose that over the increasing occurrences of infant baptism. And then by the middle of the third century, with the emergence of the Roman Catholic Church, we have now baptism of children becoming the normal practice, though it wasn't yet universally observed. By the way, Catholic, what does that mean? It comes from a Greek word, which means universal, okay? So the Roman universal church. So what we're doing is we're tracing baptism. And we come to the Roman Catholic Church, and they instituted infant baptism as a ritual of regeneration, The Catholic Church, still today, officially teaches that water cleanses a baby from original sin and results in salvation. That is the church teaching. The Roman Catholic Church teaches this, that if your baby should die before it is christened, baptized, that it goes to a place they call the limbo of the innocents. Okay? And this is a place where they believe that the soul enjoys a natural bliss but is forever deprived of a vision of God. By the way, that is totally not in the Bible, but is something that they have created, and they believe that your baby would go the limbo of the innocence. Now, what do we have here? Third century, we have high infant mortality. We have church officials who are literate. They can read. Most of the people can't. They're illiterate. You have church officials saying, hey, if you want your baby to make sure they go to heaven if they should die, you need to make sure they are baptized. That became the official position of the Roman Catholic Church. It was a way of quickly bringing the masses under the church. They called them Christians. They were Catholic Christians. They were Catholic. They were brought in the church. They had been baptized. Baptism has now saved them, cleansed them from original sin, made them Christians, so they believed, and that was what they did. You have high mortality rates, and you have lots of babies dying. It was pretty easy for official clergy Church leaders saying, listen, you want your child to go to heaven, be baptized. And that is how we have the masses. We also get state churches developing, and the Roman Catholic Church had immense power. Now, it shouldn't surprise us that the Roman Catholic Church would be baptizing babies and say that that's salvation. Because the Roman Catholic Church has two sources of authority. One authority is the Bible. On the other hand, of completely equal value but actually and seems to have more weight than the Bible, is what they call tradition, or the magisterium. Magisterium was what they call the tradition. And those are two equal authorities. And so they have an authority, and if they have this church tradition, and by the way, the Catholic Church 
thinks pretty highly of themselves. They believe that uh, they are the unique recipient of post-biblical revelation, that God has given his word to the Catholic Church. They are the only ones that can interpret the Bible, and they're the only ones that can truly interpret all the tradition. They're it. They're the source. They have set themselves up uniquely as the authority, tradition or, or Bible. It doesn't matter. They see themselves as the authority. And so they have this absolute system, and it doesn't... It shouldn't surprise us that they would create something like infant baptism. It brings everybody under their domain, and it worked amazingly well. Now, that's pretty much how things went for over a thousand years until we have, in the 1500s, what significant event? The Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation has some different beginnings, but oftentimes we associate it with a man by the name of Martin Luther. He was... A brilliant man. He was a he was a Catholic priest. He was actually one of their top theologians of the time. He was a professor of theology, and he's really wrestling with some of the things that he saw. One of the issues that really bothered him was this whole idea of indulgences. The Catholic Church could sell a piece of paper to a peasant. The peasant would give the money, and they would be able to free their relative out of purgatory or get some sort of forgiveness of sins. And, you know, he's, he was illiterate, and he's trying to read the Bible and trying to figure this stuff out. And he's like, I don't see how this works, you know. And he was troubled by that. And then he kind of nailed this 95 Theses. He didn't really want to, to break out of the Catholic Church. He wanted to reform it. He nailed these 95 Theses, a typical way of starting debate. Didn't, it didn't go over too well. And they didn't, the Catholic Church and its hierarchy didn't like to be challenged like that. And so we have Martin Luther doing that. He eventually comes to an understanding. It wasn't all at once an understanding of what it means to be justified by faith, to be declared by God, to be right with God. He comes to this understanding. He is a sharp man, and he goes and continually becomes convinced that it's the Bible that matters. The Bible should shape us. In fact, Luther went so far as to say that it has to come out of the Bible. That's what he believed. And so let me give you a quote from Martin Luther, because, you know, he really fought pretty hard against the Catholic system. Let me give you this quote. Quote, the church needs to rid itself of all false glories that torture scripture by inserting personal ideas into the scripture, which lend to it their own sense. No, exclamation mark. He said, scripture, scripture, scripture for me, constrain, press, compel me with God's word. That's Martin Luther. Now, what is surprising, though, is that Martin Luther never freed himself from the practice of over a thousand years of infant baptism. In fact, in 1526, he wrote a small baptismal book. That's the name of the small baptismal book. That same formula is used today. And let me just tell you what this looks like. And I'll, I'll just even read to you what takes place if you, when you bring your baby to be baptized. And there are people in this room, I would say there's probably a lot of us, who've been baptized as babies. But let me just tell you this Martin Luther, this from his prayer book, or the, excuse me, the small baptismal book. And he, they say this, quote, O Lord Almighty, I invoke thee concerning this child, thy servant, who asks for the gift of thy baptism and desires thy grace through the spiritual new birth. So all of a sudden we have a child, an infant, who is a, now a servant of God, and they are asking for grace and new birth. Okay? I mean, I want you to think of the infant, and can they really do this? Okay? Even though that this is a totally unconscious infant in the sense of not understanding anything that is taking place here. Then they go on to say this, quote, Receive him, O Lord, and thus extend now the good to him who knocks, that he may obtain the eternal blessing of this heavenly bath and receive the promised kingdom of thy gift through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And then in Luther's ceremony, the infant is asked, Doest thou renounce the devil and all his works and nature? Okay, and the parents answer, yes. The baby doesn't. Is the baby getting this? No. The parents answer, yes. Then they say, doest thou believe in God the Father and Jesus Christ, his Son, in the Holy Spirit and the one Christian church? And these are asked to the infant, and the parents say, yes. The child is then baptized, and then they have this concluding prayer. The Almighty God hath begotten thee anew through water and the Holy Spirit, and has forgiven thee all thy sins. Amen. 
That is what's taught. You know what that is? That is salvation by baptism of an infant that is not taking part of it. That's infant salvation through water. If you'd like to see this, you can even go to the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod website and you can check this out. Quote, this is what they believe about baptism. Baptism is God's act, a divine testimony to what grace alone really means, whereby he imparts the blessings of forgiveness, life, and salvation to individuals, children, and adults alike. Well, that sounds nice, but you know what? It is patently unbiblical, and it has pervaded many churches. Martin Luther believed that baptism cleansed a baby from sin. He was asked, whoa, how can you reconcile this? He was asked, how, how can you affirm if you believe in justification by faith alone? How can you do this? And he replied this. And you could see how we'd be really wrestling with this. Well, quote, I'm reading, quote, well, somehow a baby must be able to believe. Well, there's nothing in the New Testament about babies being baptized or about salvation apart from personal faith in Jesus Christ. And that can only come when you understand the gospel. And I don't care who your infant is, as bright as they may be, and all babies are real smart, I know that. But they cannot believe And that is what is called for to believe the gospel. We have in this time, this reformation, we have reformed churches or reformation based churches. And unfortunately, they adopted instead of jettisoning this longstanding practice of infant baptism. But reformed churches have they changed it, modified it and varied it a little over time. They teach now that when Christian parents come and have their baby baptized, that that baby then is automatically becomes a little member of God's covenant people. And they say the reality of that is then uh, confirmed when a child is old enough to recite the church's catechism properly. And when that is when they're able to do that, then the reality then set is set for it. Now, many churches, Presbyterian churches, they don't want to say that it's salvation. No, but it is definitely bringing a part of a community. In fact, I'll tell you what they do. They say that, well, in the Old Testament, there was circumcision and that has now been replaced by baptism. Okay, now circumcision was for the males and baptism is for everybody. That's that's a problem. But but they say that that brings that person in the community and the sign of Israel was circumcision. That's now been arbitrarily now been replaced by baptism. What I find to be very surprising, John Calvin, uh, who has basically come down on the side of infant sprinkling or infant baptism. He's at the heart of the Presbyterian Church. If you've ever read his writings, like, for instance, the Institutes of Christian Religion, uh, religion. I mean, this is, you can tell that the man was understanding some of the issues and trying to reconcile thousand plus years of church history practice. In his institutes, in the fourth book, chapter 15, section 19, quote, he wrote this, whether the person baptized to be wholly immersed and that whether once or thrice or whether he is only to be sprinkled with water is not of the least consequence. Churches should be at liberty to adopt either according to the diversity of climates. But listen to this. Although it is evident that the term baptize means to immerse and that this was the form used by the primitive church. And that, by the way, is a fact that has been confirmed by multiple scholars. There are other Greek words for sprinkling. Okay, it's not that they didn't have a word. There are other Greek words for sprinkling or to be pouring out. But. The Greek word means to immerse, and even someone by, like John Calvin knew that and could write about that, and we can read about that today. There's no infant baptism in the Bible. There isn't. You can't find it. It doesn't advocate infant baptism. You can't find it there. It doesn't exist. There's no example of it, and there is no comment on it. And there are some people that were recognizing this during the Reformation. What is the rallying cry of the Reformation? What is it? It is scripture, scripture, scripture. That's Martin Luther. That is John Calvin. That is the battle cry of the Reformation. Let's get back to the Bible. It is not tradition, tradition, tradition. And so there was a group of people that said, yeah, we're the Reformation has definitely started. We are getting back to what God has called us in the Bible. And I think that includes baptism. There is a group of people that arose then called the Anabaptists. 
and they were seen as a threat both to the Roman church as well as Reformed churches. These people, they rose in the 1500s. They said, you know what? This is all wrong, this baptizing babies. Baptism is only for people who consciously put their faith in Jesus Christ. Infant baptism really doesn't mean anything in God's eyes. You have to believe, and after you believe, you're baptized. And so that's what they started practicing. That's why they're called Anabaptists. That word Anna, that's the Greek word, again, again, baptized. And they saw it as for adults. You believe as an adult in Jesus Christ, and then you're baptized. Well, that did not go over very well, as you can imagine, with the Catholic Church, or even Protestant churches, who very quickly became kind of like, had state influence, became very powerful. In fact, some of the things they very much despised of the Roman Catholic Church, they became with significant influence of countries. And you know what they did with these Anabaptists? They persecuted them. And in some cases, we have reformers, people that were Protestants, actually killing Anabaptists because of their beliefs. Now, uh, it's as hard as that is to imagine, that is what took place. Let me just kind of bring you up to speed of what is even happening today. There are so many widespread beliefs on baptism. Certainly, millions upon millions of people around the world are baptized as infants, whether that be in Catholic churches, Presbyterian churches, Anglican, it's just... The Lutheran churches, they get their, they have their babies and they go and have them baptized. And there's tons of confusion. Many of these people think that is salvation for their child. Some believe, well, it's actually bringing them into the church, but they're not saved, but they will become saved at a later point. So there's many, many people that believe that. And then we give you some other developments, like groups like the Salvation Army and Quakers, or otherwise known as the Friends Church, or ultra-dispensationalists that follow the teachings of E.W. Bullinger. They actually, like, baptism non-issue. Don't even need it. And actually, that is becoming pretty common. You know, baptism, not that important. And then, of course, you have then the Churches of Christ, or they go by the name, like, Christian Churches. Well, that's pretty convenient. Or Disciples of Christ. And they believe in something called baptismal regeneration, that you have to be baptized in order to be saved. In fact, if you are not baptized, you go to hell. So you got to get baptized right away. Now, I do not think that's what the teachers, the scriptures teach. In fact, remember when Jesus was dying on the cross, there were two thieves on either side of him. And there was one of them that believed that he was the Savior. And you know what, what did Jesus say to him? Luke chapter 23, verse 43 said this to the thief on the cross. Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. If baptism was a requirement for salvation, then that thief on that cross somehow would have had to be baptized. That is not the case. And then totally outside the Orthodox, uh, Orthodox Christianity, you have like a cult like Mormons. I don't know if you know this, but the Mormon church practiced proxy baptism. This is a baptism for the dead, proxy baptism. And every year, we're talking like a number about three million people who are deceased are baptized by members of the Mormon church. You're wondering, why are the Mormons so into genealogical records? That is why they are baptizing people for the dead. You know, this is a this is a major issue. Because in reality we have millions of people who are baptized who are not Christians and millions of people who are probably truly Christians but have never been baptized. This is a serious problem and frankly there's a lot of confusion on it. So what does the New Testament emphasize on this issue? Well, I'd like to just kind of quickly go through it. How is it that the new church, the, the new church that Jesus established, how did they practice baptism? Well, you can find that because we actually have the history of the early church. What book is that? The book of Acts. You want to know? It doesn't have to be a mystery. In fact, I'm, I'm going to go through these very quickly. You might want to write them down, look them up. You can go through them with me, whatever you want like to do. But I'd like to see how was it unfolded in the early church? How was it practiced? You can find in Acts chapter 2, verse, beginning in verse 14, 50 days after Jesus' death and resurrection, we have a feast called Pentecost. You'll remember what took place. That is where the church is born. They are filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter, who once was running, he's now preaching, and he is telling people to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And man, he gets them. They are thinking deeply about what he's saying. And so you can find right there, Acts chapter 2, verse 37. They're like, whoa, brethren, what shall we do? Acts 2:38. Peter said to them, repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And what happened? 3,000 people, about 3,000 people believed, and about 3,000 were added. Acts chapter 8, 
verses 4 through 13, you have a situation where Philip is out. He's doing some missionary work because he persecution has started. People are fleeing out of Jerusalem. He's one of them. The gospel goes to Samaria. You've got Jerusalem down here in the south. You have the Samaritans. They hate these folks. But he moves up there and he starts proclaiming the gospel. Look what takes place in Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 12, when the, he says, But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being what? Baptized. Men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. By the way, what does baptized mean? It means to immerse, and that could be translated there. In fact, it's very interesting. You know, the word baptized is a transliteration of the word baptizo, okay? But it could have been just translated immersion, and frankly, that would have con- cleared up a lot of confusion on this issue. But let's just keep moving here through the book of Acts. Acts chapter 8, verse 26. Philip is now going to be used by God to go to a guy who's a, who is a proselyte to Judaism. He's an Ethiopian. He's a eunuch. He's got a high place. He's gone to Jerusalem to worship. He's making his way back to Africa. He's reading the book of Isaiah. And lo and behold, Philip shows up. He explains the gospel to him. And notice this is, this is amazing. And we've already kind of covered this, but verse 36 And they went along the road and they came to some water and the eunuch said, whoa, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? Now, I want you to know that Philip must have understood the play, didn't he? That baptism was somehow a part of the message of identifying with Christ once you believe. This guy got it and he's on a little carriage ride. Okay, and so there he sees, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? Verse 37, and Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, well, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So what happens then if you really believe? Verse 38, and he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. And by the way, this baptism, this is an important official. It's public. Those people that are driving the carriage, his escort, they are all seeing this. The testimony is out. This guy's now identifying with this one, Jesus Christ. Turn next chapter, Acts chapter 9. You see the example of Paul. By the way, his name was Saul at this time. Not a real friendly God of Christianity. Great persecutor. Ripping families apart, watching people die, standing collecting coats while that Stephen, the first martyr, is being killed. This is a vicious man who was marvelously transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, he has an encounter with Jesus Christ. Jesus has him blind for three days. He eats nothing, drinks nothing. I think you can find that in verse 9. And he, what do you do? Well, he sends... Jesus sends one of his men, Ananias, to him. And look at verse 17. Ananias departed and entered the house. And after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. And he regained his sight and he got up and was what? What? He was baptized. You see that? And then he took food and was strengthened. You know, if I hadn't drank anything or eaten anything after three days, I think, you know, the Baptist can wait. I'm going to go for the food. No. Baptize. Why? Because even the great persecutor of the church, Saul, knew this is how you identify with a crucified and risen Lord. You were baptized. And I would imagine what Damascus was like because they knew the boy was coming. And now he's in a pool being baptized and being identified with the very same one that he said he hated and sent him on his mission up there. You want to keep seeing it? Turn to the next chapter, Acts chapter 10. There is a Roman centurion. That means he's in charge of 100 soldiers. This guy, um, through a series of events, has Peter come, preaches the message of Jesus Christ and salvation to him. Notice how it ends. Verse 47, Peter saying this, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can he? And he ordered them to be what? Baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then he stayed on with them. So what is the pattern that we see here? They're baptized. Or look at another one. Acts chapter 16, verse 30. You've got the Philippian jailer. I just want you to see how was the play conducted by the early church. Acts chapter 16, verse 30. You have a situation here where Paul and Silas are in jail. There's an earthquake. This guy thinks he's going to lose his life because the prisoners are going to escape. And he says, verse 30, notice this. 
Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Okay, and then verse 31, the response. They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You, you know what, your entire household, you and your household. You believe this, you can be saved. Look at verse 32. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all those who were in his house. They're explaining the gospel. They're speaking to him. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized. He and all his household. And look at verse 34. And he brought them into his house and set food before him and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. It wasn't like just the Philippian jailer was baptized and like, you guys just got to do this because I say so. They what? According to the text, they believe. Who gets baptized? Believers. A few more. Acts chapter 18, verse 8. Crispus. How would you like that name? Crispus, the leader of the synagogue believed in the Lord with all his household, okay? And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and what? Being baptized. Let me just give you one more in case there's any doubt. Acts chapter 19, Paul encounters some men who had been baptized by John. Well, he explains to them about Jesus Christ. You can see that right there in the text. Acts chapter 19, verse 4, Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him. That is in Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. What was the pattern of the early church? The pattern was believe and you're baptized. Now you're sitting there and you're going, well, how important is baptism? I want you to just go back to our text. Who gave us this? Matthew chapter 28. How important is it? Well, you know how important it is? It is what Jesus Christ has commissioned us. And who is Jesus Christ? Verse 18. He is the one who has all authority in heaven and earth. This is not a matter to be trifled with. This is from the Lord himself. Baptism, by the way, was extremely costly. People that were baptized in the early church faced ostracism from their culture, persecution, sometimes even death. Business people that saw that they were now identifying with Christ and doing so publicly through baptism, they may never get to do business with those people again. Families would disown you. You paid a price to identify with Christ. And Jesus says, listen, I want you to go engage people. And when they believe, what do you do? You baptize them. Baptism is an internal expression of an an external expression, excuse me, of an internal reality. It says, I'm identifying because with him because I'm united with him. You know, I believe that Jesus Christ was not intending to be ambiguous with his statements here. I think there's a clear meaning. And you know what? You and I need to know what that is. And listen, I know that uh, there's varying opinions on this. A lot of trees have fallen over this issue. But I want you to not take my word on it. You examine the scriptures yourself. But this is the play that the Savior's called. We're going to be called an account. What did you do with the words that I sent you with? My great commission that you memorized and had your kids memorize. Did you do it? What is the plan? The plan is that we're to be going, baptizing. And notice what he says, verse 20 teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. We're supposed to go and help people grow in the fullness of God's grace by explaining God's word. We're to train them, teach them, because all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. That is what we're to do. That's God's plan. We're to know who he is. We're to follow what he says, going, baptizing, and teaching. And notice how he concludes this. We are to depend on him as you live. Look at verse 20 at the end. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You know, this gospel ends where it begins. The angel promised there is one who is coming. His name is Emmanuel. You know what that means? He said, God with us. And Jesus said, you know what? I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He's the vine. We're the branches. We're with him. We've got life. You know what the Christian life is? The Christian life is Christ living in us. That's the Christian life. So, friends, this is the plan. 
This is the plan of Jesus Christ. We are to know who he is. Verse 18. We're to follow what he says, going, baptizing, and teaching. And we're to depend on him as we live. What would happen if you were in a football game and a play was called and you didn't run the play that the coach had called? You, you know, like half of the folks did and half of them didn't. The ball was handed off and the guy ran, but he got tackled because only half the blocks were made. And, and let's say three of the other guys had gotten a little pushing match. You know, they're on the same team. And, and then one guy, he, he ran to the wrong end zone. He was waving to someone in the crowd. And then there was another guy and he was on the sideline begging for some more Gatorade, the orange flavor to be precise. And the, you know what the coach would do? Call a little timeout, wouldn't he? And he'd call the guys in, and you know what he'd say? What are you doing? You'd get the message that you didn't follow the play. Friends, this is what God, Jesus Christ, has called us to do. This is his plan. The question is, are we going to follow it? Let me give you one liberty that God did not give us, and that is to call an audible. You know what an audible is? It's when you get up to the line of scrimmage, and then you change the play based on the defense that you see. Don't you think that God knows the adversary and the world in which we face? I think he does. He wants us to run the play. He has called it. We're to execute it. We can't just go up and go, oh, yeah, but look at what's out there. People aren't interested in going today. Oh, no, 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 no. You know, that's radically inconvenient. This baptism, you know, that's some sort of ancient, archaic, ecclesiastical, old option. You know, it's nice if you want it, whatever. But, you know, frankly, we live in a cafeteria spirituality. You can take it or leave it. Baptism is kind of like the jello salad at the end of line. You want it? You can have it. You don't want it? It doesn't matter. It's... And then this whole idea of teaching. You know what? <sighs> that doesn't work today. Because you know what? We're not into teaching today. We're into entertaining Frankly, teaching is hard and you have to apply yourself to do it and to listen to it. And, you know, that's just the whole goal today is to get a massive crowd of people. And teaching is seen to be divisive and boring. So, you know what? That's just not where people are today. Get real. Change the play. And so we have. We have changed it. We've called an audible. Going has now become this. Well, just come when you want to. If you can, you know, it's okay. And uh, leave this little engaging the gospel with the culture. Just leave that to some missionary or a pastor. Okay. And then the, the, the baptizing bit, that's totally optional, like kind of like your KitchenAid mixer and just an extra attachment. You want it? You can have it. It doesn't really matter. And teaching, well, you know, frankly, churches are totally moving away from teaching. It's kind of like this. Just tell me some nice stories. Make me laugh a little bit. Sprinkle in a Bible verse or two and tell me that I believe the Bible and never challenge me with the fullness of Scripture. You keep it simple and tell me that I'm deep. That's pretty much the play that we're running today. My question to you is this. Do you think that's the play the Savior called? You know, one day we're going to be before before him. And in some way or shape or fashion, he's going to ask us, what did you do with my son and what he said? Friends, the, the plan is in your hand. The question I have is, Is it in your heart and in your life? Are you doing what he has said? And Jesus said this. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always even to the end of the age.